Welcome to the Loose Head Podcast. To accomplish great things, we must not only act, but also dream. Not only plan, but also believe. In a way, we want you to fail because we know you're pushing yourself to a new level. I've rarely seen capability compensate for a lack of character or a lack of capacity. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Loosehead Podcast. This Tackling the World series is based on the challenges of the Rugby World Cup, covering a wide range of topics such as selection process, the build-up, the games and memories, challenges, mental health and everything in between. This series is sponsored by Sound Out Rhythm, a company that provides tuition and events across all drum and percussion instruments, led by professional drummer and performer Connor Moore. Four different players will join me to discuss their experiences and memories and today I'm delighted to be joined by Nemanja Nandolo. Thanks a million for taking the time to come on the show today. How are you getting on? How are you enjoying rugby in Leicester? Yeah, it's good. Um, you know, it's my sort of my first, well, first season here. Um, if you include the other one, um, the half of the season last last year. But no, really enjoying my time here so far. Um, I think for me, it's just getting used to, you know, the style of play here. And, um, you know, just they, they do them do things here. I can say it's, it's off the field, very professional. Um, you know, the way they conduct themselves. And, yeah, I think just getting used to the way, the style of rugby that's played here in England. And, um, you know, it's, it's despite the weather, the weather is some getting used to. Um, but, no, really enjoying my time so far here um, with the Tigers. What would you say the biggest kind of style and difference of play is so far? I think just the way uh, we, um, the way they, well, the way they apply pressure here. Um, I remember... You know, when just watching from outside in, from the Southern Hemisphere, even from France, you know, you used to always, they, we used to kick a lot. You know, they kick a lot here. And, you know, you always used to be like, why do you guys kick a lot, kick a lot? It's not until I came here and actually, you know, found out how they do it and why they do it. And, you know, the given the weather as well and the style of rugby they play here, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Um, to do what we do and it's, it's actually exciting I mean I'm used to getting my hands on the ball you know heaps um, in past teams that I've played in whereas here um, I've learned to be just as you know dangerous without the ball if that makes sense so um, one thing that and I'm thankful for as well here is um, the way we train um, suits the way we play and it, it's really it's really exciting to be fair a lot of the fans don't you know, you're always about here in the Northern Hemisphere, especially in, in the UK, that they kick a lot, they kick a lot. But I think for me, just, you know, really real, like realising why they do it and why we do it, it um, makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, I've just learned to get myself, you know, in the best way, in the best shape, not only that, but like to get to, to be able to do what we're doing at the moment. And, um, you know, I can, I've learned that I could be just as dangerous without the ball than with the ball, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think over the last couple of years, though, we've seen every team kick more than in the past. And certainly in the last maybe 18 yeah. months, two years, it's just, and a lot of fans don't like it. A lot of fans want to see the run in rugby and a lot of, like, that's understandable mm. too. But I suppose it's just the way the game yeah. changed and the breakdown laws. It's it's a means to an end now, isn't it? More than anything. Exactly. And, you know, with, with the rules changing and, you know, they're, they're really... Um, just the way you can get over the ball now, 
you know, used to be longer before you get a penalty. Now, as soon as you hit the ground and someone over you, you know, a few seconds. So you've got to, you know, adapt um, to the way the rule, that probably has a big say in it. So it's just whatever team adapts well to it. And um, you still see the odd teams running it as well, which is exciting to see as well. But from a, you know, like a, a driver's or a direction point of view of how we're trying to play and where we're trying to play on the field, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And I asked you on today to talk about your experience around the Rugby World Cup with Fiji and, you know, how you enjoyed it and maybe the challenges and everything you faced with Fiji heading into those Rugby World Cups. So if it's okay with you, I'll just jump straight in and we can have a little chat about that. Yeah, get involved, yeah. First off, I suppose the first question I'd like to ask is, and I'm kind of going back before the World Cup here, but you were involved in the academy out in, uh, out in Australia. I think it was um, Western Force Academy, and this is maybe at the start of your career. And I was listening to a podcast yeah. earlier today, and they said that you weren't, yeah. you weren't light enough, and then you weren't quick enough. So they cut you, and you found it very difficult to find the, yeah. a club. And I suppose then... I know fast forward to Japan and from Japan, you went to the Crusaders where the Crusaders said, you know, look, you're, you're big, you're strong. You can finish, you can break tackles and we want you to do that. So I guess in a, a long winded question, I suppose what I'm asking is when you were playing for Fiji in those world cups, did you think about what was said to you in Australia and use it for motivation? But on the flip side, did you use what was said to you at the Crusaders and use it almost as an assurance in your own abilities? Yeah, 100%. Um, look, I still said to me those many years ago till today, um, you know, getting told, you know, um, I wasn't going to be quick enough and I wasn't going to be, you know, I was too big, I guess, to to be able to handle the, the pace. This is just super rugby we're going. So, you know, I took that on board and um, I used that as, as a fuel, even till today, like I said. So it's kind of like a playing with a chip on my shoulder, I guess, if that makes sense. And um, you know, until I went to the World Cup, uh, to the Crusaders, and it was a total opposite. You know, so you got to realize, man, now in, in today's world with man's career, um, it's simple as that. You, we, we hear it all the time. Come over here, to the Southern Hemisphere, absolutely kill it, and then playing for their adopted country, go back and get picked. You know what I mean? So um, when I was at the Crusaders, and they said the total opposite. Um, it gave me the the and my my job when I was at the Crusaders. So one that gave me the confidence to want to um, to just you know they gave me the license to just be me. So it was you know they experiment they took it took a gamble on me and and you know it, it shaped up my career and um, you know went on to play in the World Cup and that thought yes of not being good enough became rather than doubt, you know. So, um, you know, like I said, people ask, I still use it today, you know, and I'm what, 33 and you know, 12, 13 years on, um, still playing professional rugby. When you got the call up for Fiji initially, so before your first cap, and I know we haven't touched on the, the World Cup yet, but I know you played Australia under 20s. Were you still hoping to play with Australia, uh, like get a full cap with Australia, or? Was the plan always to play with Fiji if the opportunity came up? Well, of course, when I was in Australia and I was in the under-20s, you know, you're only one step away from, from the Wallabies. And um, it wasn't until, you know, I wasn't getting any love at, at club rugby, uh, sorry, with the Waratahs, um, when I was there with the Waratahs. And, you know, you, you can you can sort of sense at the time that, you know, no club wanted me in Australia at the time. 
you know, so um, being told that, you know, I wasn't going to be good enough to play Super Rugby, I guess for me it was just working up the, the courage to, to come overseas. I didn't want to come overseas, but an opportunity came. And as that came up as well, Fiji came. So, and I knew at the time, you know, never going to um, get picked for Australia um, playing overseas. And, you know, once, once Fiji came to me, um, I put my head up and, you know, I, I took it with both hands. And um, thankfully, you know, it's taken me to, to um, a World Cup and, and played I guess how long we've been back now. So about 10, 11 years in the, in the Fiji jersey, you know. So, um, you know, it was just an opportunity, an opportunity came, but my desire um, to want to play for Fiji was equally there. Does that make sense? Um, no, absolutely. And, you yeah. know, you sort of, when you don't feel wanted, you, you, when you don't feel wanted, you know, you, you, you want to go somewhere. And, you, you know, I guess that's what I did in my career. I just started, I got on a plane and just thought, right, where can I go to, you know, to make a name for myself? With Fiji, did they nourish that crusader mentality of you are good enough and just do what you do and just play the way you want to play? Um, you know, you got, Fiji, there's a lot of talented, you know, dangerous, talented, raw talent in, in the squad. So, um, you know, obviously I got picked to play Fiji because of my ability and what I did at club level. So it wasn't, you know, put on there. It wasn't like as if it wasn't, put on me to, to be, um, you know, because I'm big, because I'm that. It was just, you know, I was good enough to play and, you know, I fit into the system and, you know, we it, it was exciting to play in a team where, you know, it can get loose at times, but I think over the years we've learned to bring in a little bit of structure, but not but not only that, to, um, not take away um, what we're good at. Just on that, it can get loose at times. I think that's one thing that people associate with Fiji that, you know, the skill set's unbelievable and they, you know, oftentimes, especially people watching games and, you know, a pass might be thrown or an offload might be thrown and people say, oh, you know, that's Fiji. But what they don't see is maybe the 20 odd years of practicing that skill over and over again. You know, they don't see that. Yeah, 100 percent. It, it's because back home, you got to remember Fiji sevens, sevens is, is, is a number one sport, you know. So when you're as young as, you know, I grew up in Australia, but, you know, going back home all the time a kid at four years old is already learning not to get tackled so offloading um is a big part of it you know getting the ball away um and to be fair i was actually a late bloom i didn't really learn to offload know how to offload until i went to the creators um and i learned off kieran reed who was always on the edge um there and watching him how he offloads you know and that's when i sort of picked out of that part of the game part of my game that part of my game um, so, you know, that was 2014, 15, I guess. So, um, you know, you're right. It just doesn't happen overnight. Um, you know, it's like, it's like here in, in, in the UK, everyone's good. You know, your guys learn how to kick. Everyone can kick growing up watching football, you know, it's the opposite in Fiji. Everyone can offload, but some of us struggle to uh, kick a ball, um, you know, so yeah. Looking towards the, the Rugby World Cup, when you got the call-up for Fiji to go to the World Cup, how did you get that call-up or how did you find out? So, um, it was 2000 and... Oh, it's funny because I made my debut in 2010 and then 2013, I didn't get picked again for the for, for 2013. Um, the coach at the time, and plus we had they had some good outside backs, so I was you know down the pecking order. 
And then it wasn't until I went on a to get back into the squad, I went and played on a like a VGA, like a, an A team. It's like the the second team, so it's usually just the locals. And I really wanted to get back into the Fiji team. The only way I could get back into it was to go through that avenue. And I was still in Japan. And I'll never forget it. I paid my way down to Sydney so I could be part of this team. And, uh, you know, we did well. And then um, that's how I got back in. I made the Northern Tour that 2013. And then I signed with Crusaders. And then I guess from there, it wasn't until uh, 2014, uh, you know, I was really well. And then... Um, Pretty much at the end of 2014, oh, we'd um, qualified for the World Cup, and you know, the coach at the time was um, was keen to have us on board, and then started the prep in Fiji in 2015, and and then the squad got announced um, at a press conference, and um, yeah, I was fortunate to be in it. So you didn't find out the night before. You didn't get a text or a phone call or anything. Um, no, I did. I didn't. I to be fair, I, I think guys already knew. I mean. No, sorry. So you were told if you didn't make it the night before, if that makes sense. So there were guys that didn't make that the night before, but we didn't know about it. So, you know, it was, um, we didn't find out till the next day that the guys who already got told didn't, um, that weren't, that, that didn't get picked, um, you know, because, yeah. And then we found out at the press conference. So thankfully I made that squad. It's a nice surprise to have, isn't it, though? Yeah, exactly. You know, first World Cup and just to be able to represent your your country, um, you know, on the biggest stage is pretty cool. So um, that was that was a, a great experience, um, you know, coming over here in 2015. Looking at the training camp and the prep you had for the World Cup, can you talk me through maybe what you did? Um, I think it was, a th- from what I can remember, it was a three-month camp. So prior to that day, we had PNC. Um, I got injured in a, in, a, in a test match against the the, the Maoris. And um, I had to, I flew back to Christchurch. Um, I pulled a muscle um, somewhere up near my ribs. It was sort of a, it's pretty sore. So I didn't actually play in the PNC. So we were actually together for four months. And then I think um, a month and a half of that, the boys were in the USA playing the PNC and I went back to New Zealand. And then I joined them back, um, and then I think the prep was probably eight weeks. You know, um, camp. It, it was in Fiji at the time, and bloody hell, it was hot. It was a it was a tough World Cup preparation. You know, we were training in humid, thirty degree heat. Um, you know, and the grounds we we're training on were put it this way: were were, were pretty tough. Um, I was training at Nami Barrack, and we just yeah, it was a slog. It was pretty tough, but um, no, it was it was a good experience. It was a great experience. I thought we we trained really well, and um, yeah, and maybe we might have had a yes. And then we flew to England and played Canada in a warm up match before the first game. Looking towards the World Cup in 2015, and you know, being in it, the group you were in Australia, England, Wales, like that was a very very tough group. Looking at the belief you had coming into the tournament, yeah. I mean, I'm a firm believer that no team enters a tournament or no player actually plays the game without an instilled sense of we're going to win. I, I, I really believe that you wouldn't be there otherwise. You know, th- there's no point in playing the game. How was the feeling in camp, let's say, before that first game or just as the tournament, when you landed, let's say, before the tournament began? 
Yeah, it was really exciting, especially knowing that we were going to play in the opening game. Um, you know, like you said, you know, you don't, no one goes into a game or goes into anything um, half-hearted. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing the sport. So I remember going into England personally, the, the amount of... Um, the amount of concentration, I guess, and the amount of prep, you know, I did individually, like I did on my own, was to get myself ready for this game was pretty, pretty, you know, pretty draining. I remember after the test match, we came back to the hotel and I just went out the back um, of our hotel where we were staying, not sure where it was, but and just had a beer on my own. Like that was, you know, it was a tough, it was very exhausting, like because it came, you know, the lead up to it, it was about two weeks. We were already in the, we're in the country for, I think, two and a half weeks already. And then, um, yeah, so, you know, but it was very intense, I think, with England. And then Australia, because we, I thought we played well against England, we thought, you know, we fancy our chance against Australia. And then, um, you know, our scrum was dominant. And that's what I think gave us confidence going into these games because, you know, we've had a set piece. You know, Fiji struggled over the years with set piece in the scrum. So you know, I think we played Australian and um, we only lost by 10 points. But, you know, I thought we did really well in that World Cup despite not coming away, just coming away with one win. And then with Wales, you know, we, you know, I got suspended that game and that was pretty frustrating. And um, But um, yeah, it was, um, you know, I think the boys, the boys were really excited knowing that, you know, because we had nothing to lose, if that makes sense, going into that World Cup. Being, you know, being a, 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 a tier two nation, so to speak, and then giving it to them. So, yeah, I thought we did well despite not winning any games. Um, I thought our, our intensity, you know, intent in going into those games was, was pretty good. Just before that England game, you said that you did a lot of mental prep and, you know, you found it very mentally draining. Can you maybe talk me through what you were doing to get yourself ready for the game? I imagine you were obviously focusing on your role and your jobs and, you know, visualizing the win and stuff like that. But, what made it so draining? I think just the prep in terms of what we wanted to do. Um, like for me, so like I remember my notebook. I already went through half the you know half the book, just writing down things of you know got to one week. So the week leading into it, I I had make I had done a like a a plan, you know, like a daily. So I did a weekly plan of what I was going to do. I was going to get my body right, and then there was gonna, and then I'd write a daily plan of what I was going to do. So it could be stuff like get a cardio session in, you know, do a, um, you know, do a stretching session. And if I didn't do any of them, you know, it would, I wouldn't sleep that night. And I remember one day I didn't do one thing and I, I don't remember what it was. Um, and I didn't do it and I didn't sleep um, that night. It was a night of captain's run, uh, the, the night before captain's run, you know. So, um, like, when I say... Things that I ripped down that I need to do was like eat right, you know, make sure I eat this. You know, by then we knew what the menu was. Um, you know, like read a book or, you know, make sure I go for a 20 minute walk. You know, and everything was sort of set to the dime that made that I made sure I had to do before leading to that game. And I remember, um, oh, like videos, you know, do hard videos watching your, you know, what they do. And then you can imagine then at the time, the media hype around everyone and everything, you know, um, people wanting to talk. And I got to a point, I was like, I don't want to talk to a media person this week, um, you know, because I, I wanted to make sure I did this, what I set out. And it, I've never, ever done it again. 
um, you know, that was that was how I dealt. That's how I tried to prepare myself for that game. And um, you know, and then leading into the game, you know, I made I had three or four points that I needed to do, and that was I think I got um, I got uh, yeah, three things I needed to do in that game, three or four things, and I and I'm pretty sure I got them all. So you know, and then after that, it was like. And it was kind of like our balcony sort of thing and pulled a beer back, just had a beer and then just thought about it because it was just like that. You know, front, paying front on 89,000 or 80,000, it was 83,000. And then before you know it, you're bloody back in your hotel room and I just had a beer and like, I think after that I was um, leading into the other games, I was kind of a bit more relaxed. You know, the first one was always tense, I think, but... Um, you know, I just wanted to make sure that I did everything leading into that game. Did you feel you were almost putting yourself through too much so that when the Australia game, or the, I know you were suspended for the Wales game, but when the Australia game was coming around, you were almost that bit more relaxed saying, look, I'm ready. I can trust the process. I can maybe not do something on my list, but still sleep the night before the captain's run and like things will be okay. Yeah. Um, so I think after the England game, because I'd already... I'd never been in a World Cup before, so I didn't know how to prepare for it. And it wasn't the week leading to the England game I'd never done before, you know. And so after the, I think it was just after the first game, I, I felt so relaxed throughout the whole tournament. I think it was just getting the one out of the way and then, you know, I was more relaxed, still did what I needed to do, but I wasn't too hard on myself if I didn't do this one thing or, you know, and I didn't set too many things that week leading to the Australian game. And then, um, yeah, I think... I only played Australia and Uruguay. I didn't play the Wales game, which I was pretty gutted about because I got um, suspended. But um, yeah, and then after the Australian game, you know, not having that, that having that week off, you know, it was like right, I was pretty pretty calm and and um, you know, um, cool then um, throughout the, you know going into the Uruguay game. Looking at your own mental health, but after you got suspended or after it came out that you would be suspended for a game. How did you go about dealing with that? Um, it was pretty hard at the time because, like, you know, you're, you're in a hotel room. You can't do anything, you know what I mean? I remember when um, we got to, when I got told. So we went down to London. We were based up in um, Swansea. And um, there's oceans and beaches around there. And I remember just um, the head coach was like, listen, take a few days off, um, you know. And then um, I, what I did was I went to some, I went to this pub, which was like heading somewhere about 20 minutes going towards the beach somewhere out of Swansea, out of Swansea. I just went on Google and I went down and had, had a few pints. Um, and then, yeah, it was quiet. There was no one there. It was, it, was a, it was an old man who just finished, who was a fisherman, I remember. And we just chatted away. And I, I think I spent a few hours there and then I came back. I didn't drive, mind you, I caught a cab. So just, um, yeah, and that was just my own. Then I came back and, you know, because you couldn't really do, like I, I, need, I needed to still be there for the boys. You know, they were prepping for the Welsh, Welsh game. And that was a game that we were targeting, that hoping we could win. Um, and, you know, um, you know, so it wasn't, you couldn't do too much to say that, you know, I've got a few hours and, Came back and then I was trained the next day with the boys and, um, you know, but it was tough to get that week off. I thought, um, I thought I was hard done by, but um, obviously the cause of the call and it's been made and I have to live with it. But, 
I think not being able to play that game against Wales was, um, you know, a tough pill to swallow because, you know, we'd already, we'd planned to come out against, uh, to, to play well against our team. I thought we did play well, just not being part of it was tough. The fan base you have, well, the fan base Fiji have, I suppose, uh, it never fails to surprise me. And I think as long as Fiji aren't playing your team, people are just so happy to support Fiji. And, you know, that England game you spoke about, the, the kind of, I suppose, the difficult time you had getting ready for it and maybe the nerves. I remember I was flying to Cardiff when I was watching that England-Fiji game in the airport and I think England scored first and I think England could have scored second as well. But then I think Fiji scored a try and mm. the whole of Dublin airport erupted. And I remember just thinking to myself, I didn't know there was this many Fijians in Ireland at the time. But how is it having that fan base kind of, I suppose almost, I don't want to say like a cult fan base, but certainly just like how, how good is it knowing that whenever you're playing for Fiji, it's not just like Fijians who are supporting you. It's, you know, it could be people from Ireland or Wales or Australia or England, depending on who you're playing. How, how good is it to have that fan base supporting you all the time? Yeah, it's pretty good, isn't it? We have, um, I think we're kind of like everyone's second team, if that makes sense. You know, when Fiji play, you know, everyone gets excited because I think it's what people do and people know what we're capable of doing. Um, so it's exciting to know, you know, you walk down here as long as we're not playing England, you know, you got half of you got of Leicestershire bloody, you know, wishing you um, good luck and and um, and all Fiji fans. So, no, it's good, man. It's great. I think, you know, it's good to know that we feel welcomed um, every time we come over here because it's a long way to come to come play a Test match, you know. And um, even when we do play against, you know, the home countries, there's always that that mutual respect with us. Um, I remember playing in Ireland. I remember playing in in Dublin a few years ago. And play- Playing in England and every play, they, you know, as much as they want their country to win, um, you know, um, they're very respective, which is so good. I remember when we played, we played England one year, and usually they do the swing low while the other team doing the haka. And the one thing I'll never forget, and it still sticks with me today, we did the haka and tweaking them that that game against England, and the whole stadium was quiet. You know, so that for me was just like. My respect, you know, for the, the the support base or the fans of England, and it still sticks with me today. Like, you know, you, when you're on TV and you see they'll chant "Swing Low" or they'll, you know, they do that while the hucker's on, and that's, you know, that's their way of of getting England up. But for them to not do it against us, I thought was um, was really respect. It was just yeah, I commend the respects, and um, you know, it was a. It's so good to see that you know people over here are really supportive of Fiji, for, especially for not playing their country, I guess. Looking at the Rugby World Cup as a whole in 2015, what would you pick out as your favourite moments from it? I think um, the first game against England. Um, it happened all quickly. I, I, you know, I thought I, I played all right that game. Um, I think the one thing I'd probably take out of that was just... Um, the first touch of the ball, the first touch of the ball was um, got it and ran it up. I thought that was a uh, sorry. There's two that and the, and just singing the anthem at the World Cup. You know, the what we gone, what we'd been through to get there uh, was pretty. Um, yeah, it was pretty emotional, I guess. And then um, yeah, that was probably that. I thought our preparation was was done perfectly. I thought with the resources we had. We did really well with, 
you know, we did, you know, obviously then it just comes down to the individual. So I can't speak on, on everyone's, um, you know, experience. My experience, for me, I, I felt I did everything I could do. Um, there was stuff that I, I wouldn't do today um, that I did in the World Cup. As a team, the preparation I thought was really good. You know, I, I can't fault the prep. Like I said, you know, we don't have our resources that were in front of us. I thought we utilised them really well. Um, but, you know, and they're the sort of things that with World Cups only come once around four years and maybe once in a lifetime. So, and that was the mentality I had going into that World Cup. You know, and, um, I remember coming out of that World Cup and it was just like, it happened so quickly that, you know, it was, it, it was such a blur, if that makes sense. Did you feel you could have been more present in the moment? Oh, of course. There'd be things that I, I could do or we could all do, but following the game plan that we had and what we what we wanted to try and achieve, you know, um, we had a lot of a lot of dangers, danger weapons, you know, across the field. But, you know, in terms of my involvement, I thought I'd, you know, I was I I couldn't fault my involvement in the and the commitment, I guess, into the in, in that in that squad. Sorry, I probably phrased that question wrong. What I meant was, do you feel like, let's say you said the England game was over kind of before you knew it, do you feel like you could have maybe stopped and took it in a bit more um, rather than letting it kind of just doing your job, I suppose? Oh, yeah. Thinking back on it now, it would have been good to just get out there and even get, like, I didn't get a photo after the, you know, after the game or just to, I didn't get any photos of that, you know. It just happened so quickly. I'd, I would have loved to go back and, you know, enjoy the moment. I think that whole week was just so tense. Um, and then, um, you know, before, like I said, before I knew it, um, it was over. So, yeah, I would have loved to, you know, um, I guess absorb it. But, um, yeah, like I said, it, it happened so quickly and we were on the bus and back to the hotel pretty much. You mentioned this already and you said with the resources you had, you prepared as best as you did. And, I suppose that's something I want to touch on is the challenges probably Fiji face heading toward World Cups or big tournaments like that. What can be done either by Fiji or for Fiji or the other Pacific Islands to help prepare them for tournaments like that? Oh, mate, to be fair, it's like money plays a big part in it. I think we all know, you know, finances play. Now, whether, you know, I, I don't know, I don't want to get into it, but I don't know you know, the finances of World Rugby give or, or you know, sponsorships and whatnot. But, you know, I guess if you were to compare us to, to, to the Tier 1 nations, you know, we don't really have that much stuff. So, but the question, I think, obviously, more is better. If we could have more, it'd be, it'd be great. But, you know, the circumstances that, that we're in um, in terms of finance and, and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, if I could, in a perfect world, we, we, if we could have the same, um, you know, stuff as Ireland and England, then we'd be happy days. But um, you know, how it comes about and how it goes about, I'm not sure. But I know right now, Simon Rowe-Louis, um, uh, who's the GM at the moment, he, he's, he's making, you know, he's turning some heads over there and he's um, working some wonders with, with what's going on over in Fiji Rugby. Um, so, and also the new coaches that, that are involved now. So it's going to be ex exciting future for Fiji um, with them at the helm. And, um, you know, right now they've, they're, you know, they're working in the, they're doing work pipeline to, uh, to 
to keep bringing Fiji rugby up up in this world. Even looking at the scheduling of games for Tier 2 nations in the World Cup, and I know Tier 1 nations can face quick turnarounds as well. I'm not saying they don't before kind of any comments or anything like that come in, but do you feel that the World Cup is scheduled in a way that almost puts Tier 2 nations on the back foot immediately? Well, of course. It's not rocket science to see, is it? You see, we, you know, I think it was Namibia or some, even us, four-day turnarounds. I think maybe I could be wrong, so don't, yeah, the four-day, well, then, well, okay, well, that's four days. Of course it is, you know, until we get everyone on even playing field. Like, you're not going to ask England, New Zealand or Ireland or any of those top guns to have a four-day turnaround. They'll come back and be like, it's absurd, you know what I mean? So, yeah, of course, it, it, it's to cater for T1s, and we see it all the time. You know, that's what people don't see, um, you know, the scheduling that we have to play four games, and it could be four games. It could be a full day of travelling. So that's already one day gone, you know what I mean? So you don't train. Um, I remember there was a conversation about it not long ago um, with the Play Association, um, the Fiji, you know, the Pacific Island Association, about that stuff. And, you know, I, if if we're talking about, you know, I, but I do understand from a marketing point of view that, you know, TV viewing and TV ratings obviously is going to be, you know, um, supportive of the Tier 1 nation. So, you know, it is what it is, but, like, it's to support the Tier 1 um, nations and make sure they're, they're fine. So, you know, I think they get from six to seven-day turnarounds, maybe I think five minimum, but I know they, they get a full week. Seventh, uh, Saturday to Saturday. So, you know, but I think, I mean, how, well, what can you do? You know, the high powers are going to obviously have the final say. I mean, you play England and you're going to be very, very sore and to have to turn around and play another game three, four days later. Like, yeah. it's, it's, almost, it's almost negligence. Yeah, it is. And I think with all the new rules coming in and concussions and all this COVID, they've got to be, it has to change. Like it has to be at least five minimum, five day minimum. You know, like they talk about, you know, the welfare of a player and all this. Well, then make it so that everyone benefits from it. Don't just make it for the for the big boys. Like sound like I'm complaining, but you know, why should we have to play three days? And you know, those guys get to play seven days. And I know, like I said, I know they're bringing in the money, and I know it's all marketing and stuff, but. It's always going to be an argument, mate. It's always going to, unless it changes, it's always going to be a conversation spoken about. And, you know, we've heard it all before, but still the same. I don't think it's complaining, though, to want to be on the level playing field when you're all playing for the same prize. Yeah, 100%. Could you imagine, could you imagine the whole of Ireland if, if the Irish were told they got four-day turnaround after playing, you know, New Zealand and having to play England the next week. Could you imagine the uproar in Dublin? Yeah, um, I don't think it would go down too well, uh, to be honest with you. But I think we even saw a little bit of that when <laughs> well, was, go, it the, was it the last World Cup? Italy needed to beat New Zealand in order to progress. And because of the storm, they just said, it's okay, we, we yeah. call it a draw. But I'm pretty sure the other games still went ahead. But would that have happened if New Zealand needed to win that game? would that have been cancelled in the same manner? I, I don't think it would have personally, to be honest. Yeah, and there you go. That's a conversation like that's got to happen, you know what I mean? Like, I know, of course, we, we all know the answer, but, 
until it happened, I mean, if you're right, if the storm happened in New Zealand League to win, of course they're going to be playing that game. You know what I mean? They've got what they wanted. So, like I said, it, it's it's a it's a golden egg. Once you've got it where you want it, then it, it nothing else really matters, does it? There's one last question I'd like to ask you, and it's it's one that was brought to my attention by a friend of mine, Kevin Conway, and when he heard I was chatting to you. And it's, what is the biggest difficulties that face specific players when they head towards Europe? The culture shock. Especially if you grow up in Fiji, if you come from the island and you've never been off the island. Um, I'm fortunate enough, I, I grew up in Australia, so similar here, just weather's better over here. You know, first of all, you got to realise a lot of the boys come over with, with no money. So, you know, when their talent allows them to earn, you know, a, a healthy paycheck each month, that, that comes into factor as well. Um, you know, the I wouldn't say it'd be the rugby, it'd just be the culture shock, you know. I know it sounds bad, but like seeing a lot of lot more white people than than what we than what they're used to back home, you know. And I think once they get involved, you know, and, and some of them might not even, some of them will come over here and never touch an al- a drop of alcohol in their life. You know what I mean? And they come here and it's just like, it's it's a massive eye A lot of players struggle when they come here. A lot of players do well. But, um, you know, the biggest thing is just culture shock. Because, you you know, when you come here, you got to remember too, mate, like professionalism in Fiji isn't what it is here. You know I mean, profession is bred into the kids here and in Australia and in New Zealand at six, 17 years old, they start lifting weights. You know, they're taught how to be professionals. They drink protein, they drink creatine, all that stuff. In Fiji, they don't, they don't lift, they won't do proper weights until they come over here, you know. Um, so the, you're pretty much getting raw talent. And so I've known when they go to, it depends what club they go to, clubs actually feel that they are the finished product. Which they, you know, which they struggle. I've always said that if if the boys could come over to the UK or Ireland and and learn their trade, it'd be so much better than say going to France, where it's it can get kind of lost it's over there. Um, and yeah, that's a lot of that's a lot of the boys here as well trying to get guys from Fiji over to the UK because of the the, the, the coaching system and the facilities. And I think also too, people expect them to be professionals right away. You know what I mean? The, the the life of a professional can, can be too much for Fijian players or island players in general. I think the good thing about it now is back home they're starting to educate these kids that this is what you need to do. I know Sarah Mumbai, who used to play for Fiji and Leicester Tigers in France for years, he's got an academy over there and they educate kids on this is what to expect when you get over there. You know, save your money. You know, there's going to be temptations, you know, because... The upbringing is totally different from Fiji to, to here. You know what I mean? So um, I, I've found a lot of guys have, have are so talented but don't do well because, you know, they, they find it hard to adapt to the culture. And I'm, I haven't even spoken about the weather yet. So, you know, that's another factor as well. But um, hopefully with the education of these young players and they're starting to do it back home, like I said earlier about what Simon Rolou is doing and, Fiji rugby, they're trying to educate these young players that this is what to expect, you know. Because um, like I said, they come over, some of them come from, you know, poor backgrounds and, you know, don't have much. And they come in, all of a sudden they've got 
you know, three, just say three, four thousand pounds a month, you know, and so which is, I don't know, about twelve thousand Fiji dollars a month. So that's a lot of money. So, you know, they come over here something in the past and up until now that they would have come here with no education, They'd see that money and think, you know, spend it and 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 whatnot. So, um, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Do you see yourself filling in a role like that, almost like a mentorship role? in the future when you finish playing um i'd love to i've always said that if if i was going to be involved in the game it'd be somewhere where i could mentor and just help young guys particularly islander guys um or even young kids in general but like just in terms of just i wouldn't say advice but just give direction like you know um and and talk about what i went through because I feel my experiences could benefit a lot of young guys coming through now. Um, you know, there's a lot of guys I know back home that, which particularly Australia, who aren't getting love and getting told they're not good enough and don't want, are too scared to come over here. Do you get what I mean? So just more things like that. I'd love to get involved um, in some sort of role. But, um, you know, right now, uh, well, hopefully it'll come about. But, um, um, you know, it's just a matter of... I guess speaking and connecting to the right people and doing something about it. But um, I've always said if I was going to be involved in the game post rugby player, it'd be something along those lines. Well, Namani, I'd like to say thanks a million for coming on and for taking the time and just being so honest about everything, so open about your experience. No, I appreciate it, Matt. Hope I didn't bore you out or um, said anything negative. Uh, if I did, it wasn't my intentions. I'm just, like I said, speaking from my experience. No, I don't think you said anything negative at all. You just you said what it is, and that's that at the end of the day, really, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. Well, that's it for me today, folks. Thanks a million for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please feel free to rate and review and subscribe to the podcast wherever it is you're listening. I'll see you back next week. And again, thanks a million to Sound Out Rhythm for sponsoring the series. All the best, and good luck.